MLB Morning Coffee's 30 Teams in 30 Days. We are a production of the Athletes Unfiltered Podcast Network. I'm Greg Mraz, the host of this program. This is day three of 30 Teams in 30 Days. We are recording from the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. On Wednesday, we started in Baltimore with the Baltimore Orioles. Yesterday, we went up to the city of brotherly love, talking about the Philadelphia Phillies. And today, we return to the AL East, down to the land of catwalks and oranges. It is the Tampa Bay Rays that we are previewing today, and we are doing so with Kevin Weiss, the host of the Locked On Rays podcast. Kevin, good morning. How are you today? Doing well, Greg. Uh, just looking forward to uh, what looks to be, as of right now, a full baseball season. We'll get all the spring training games in and all the regular season games in, so hopefully some, some normalcy in 2021. Thank goodness. Well, even if 2020 was abnormal, the Rays certainly would take it. They had the best record in the American League. They went to their second World Series in franchise history. So I'll start off with this, Kevin. Are expectations as high for the Rays as they've ever been? Uh, that's a good question. I would say if the team had kept most of the pieces from last season, it would be. Uh, I think a lot of people are considering this to be more of a transition, take one step back, take two steps forward in 2022, 2023, 2024. I think what they've done with the rotation and making the changes and uh, trading Blake Snell and letting Charlie Morton go uh, onto the Atlanta Braves um, and and what they've tried to do in patchwork the rotation for now and adding guys like Michael Walker, Rich Hill, and Chris Archer and, and Colin McHugh, which a lot of those guys have, have questions. I mean, they could be big hits for sure, but there's also a lot that could go wrong with that. And then there's also the expectation that it's starting to get that time where some of the big name prospects are eventually going to get that call. So this is kind of the year of patch something together, try to continue that success, but getting back to the World Series does seem be uh, a little bit lofty as the team currently stands but definitely getting back to the playoffs and winning 90 plus games and going from there I think is definitely within the realm of possibility but when you lose I mean basically your your ace and your number two your number two your number three um in in over the course of a couple of months that that makes things pretty difficult there uh when you when you're, when you're expecting some of those other guys you, you brought in to replace those guys to replicate that production. So I think it could be difficult from that standpoint. And then you look at the fact of the Yankees have gotten better and stronger. The Blue Jays have certainly gotten better and stronger. So it's definitely going to be a grind, the AL East this year, I would expect. I've been trying to figure this out five different ways, and I can't seem to figure it out. So let me ask somebody that actually covers the team. Why did the Rays trade Blake Snell? What's the justification for trading a guy that has three years and only $10 million annually left on his contract? I just don't understand it. Yeah, a couple things there. One, money, of course. I mean, even $10 million to another team is, is not the same as $10 million to the Rays. $10 million to the Rays is like twenty-five or $30 million to another team. And I know this hasn't really been fully reported and it's kind of speculation on my part, but I mean, there's been Blake Snell has been very clear in his, how upset he is and how the Rays operate of taking pitchers out after five innings or five and a third, five and two thirds. 
Blake Snell is the type of guy, after winning the Cy Young in 2018, he wants to be able to go deep. He wants to be able to pitch seven and eight. He wants to be able to, he wants to be that workhorse that'll give you 225, 250 innings in a year. And the Rays are just transforming and going in a direction where they rely more on their bullpen than their starting rotation. They kind of mix it 50-50. And I think there's there's maybe some sour grapes there. And it's been, uh, you know, it, it was a pretty bad year of headlines for Blake Snell last year with what he talked about, you know, not getting paid. He was talking about sitting out the season and um, he made some comments on Twitch about the Rays trading Tommy Pham. So I think there was, I don't want to say bad blood, but it, it wasn't, you know, a, a lovely, hearty relationship between Snell and the Rays. Plus, he brought on Scott Boris, who does not like working with the Rays, too. So it, it, it was kind of perfect storm for them to move off of him. Also, you know, he hasn't really been able to stay totally healthy over the last year and a half. He's had a, a number of elbow ailments and issues that have popped up. I mean, if there's kind of, I mean, it kind of makes sense to trade him in a way, get what you can for him now and, and go from there. So like, I, it, it would have been great to, to bring him back and see what he could do in 2021. But th- there's also some, some risk with Blake Snell too. Maybe the, the 2018 season was a flash in the pan because he hasn't really returned to that form since. Now he saw some, some flashes of that, of course, uh, throughout the postseason and such. But I think they saw this is a guy that, you know, the Padres are really aggressive. They, they are willing to give a lot for a pitcher like this. And the Rays bit at the chance. And, and I think they got four really good prospects or players in return that, you know, Luis Patino could definitely be the next Blake Snell or close to a Blake Snell at some point. They needed catcher depth. They got that with Blake Hunt. Uh, and Francisco Mejia, and they added another intriguing, hard-throwing arm in Cole Wilcox. So it was a very, if you're somebody that follows the Rays, it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, this is the team that, that DFA's guys like C.J. Crone and Corey Dickerson and trades Tommy Pham because they don't want to pay an $8 million arbitration figure. So it's almost kind of par for the course for the Rays. I mean, at, at some point, they're they're going to probably trade Willie Adamas and Kevin Kiermeyer, so they don't have to pay those guys. And they also have such a great farm system that they can just bring up cheaper replacements and go from there. We're talking with Kevin Weiss of the Locked On Tampa Bay Rays podcast. Before I get into player-specific questions, everybody loves Kevin Cash because he is one of the best in baseball at doing more with less. But I will ask to sort of finish off the point in regards to Blake Snell. How much was his reputation hurt by what he did in game six by pulling Snell as early as he did? Yeah, I think it's definitely, of course, it was a lot of negative reaction, instant reaction, which is what we get nowadays. There's there's no more nuance to arguments anymore, seemingly. But um, it, it definitely kind of is sticks over his head and sticks over the organization a little bit. I mean, it seems like he's asked the question once a week, uh, at least, and, and especially – um, you know, after the Blake Snell trade went down, it, it was very much at the four too. But we also have to keep in mind, like, it's not Kevin Cash making all of these decisions in a vacuum. It's uh, the front office. The front office is the one that pulls the strings and, and kind of directs Kevin Cash and really other managers throughout baseball. It's the, the front office that, you know, gives you the numbers and the analytics. And this is kind of by the book how you should go about things. And, you know, at the time, 
I really did not have a huge issue with him pulling Blake Snell out in that situation because we had seen it all year. He'd been doing it with pretty much every pitcher. I mean, this has been something, it's what got the Rays to a 40 and 20 record. It's what got the Rays to game six of the World Series. Why, why change and flip on a dime what has been working the entire season uh, to appease a, a, a national narrative or something like that? Now, uh, I do disagree with who they replaced now with and Nick Anderson, who was visibly worn out and tired and didn't have the velocity on his fastball as he did earlier on in the season. They should have used somebody like Diego Castillo or Ryan Thompson or somebody that was a little bit more fresh and productive in the postseason instead of a guy that was absolutely battered and shot and had been, they, they went to the well one too many times for that. But I think we focus, we're focusing too much on the taking out Blake Snell as opposed to uh, the Rays only scored one run in that game. It's very hard to beat the Dodgers scoring just one run. And at some point you're probably going to have to replace Blake Snell in that game. He's not throwing a perfect game. I don't think, or not a, a, a complete game. I, I certainly didn't see that scenario happen. And it's what the Rays do third time through the order. That, that's, that, that's kind of another thing that ties in with, you know, not paying Charlie Morton $15 million and not paying Blake Snell $5 million. They're basically going to be a whole rotation and whole pitching staff of, of both guys, guys that'll give you three, four, five innings. And then third time through the order, second time through the order, maybe even uh, they, they replace them with somebody else. It's a lot of mixed and matching. So they, they don't feel they have to, to make that pay for a guy. So yeah, his, his reputation certainly took a hit, I guess. Um, in the grand scheme of things, but it's not all on Kevin Cash at the end of the day. I mean, if you want to blame somebody, blame the front office, blame the, the team offense and, and, you know, having one of the worst strikeout rates that, I mean, they, they weren't winning a World Series with the amount of guys that were striking out as they were. So, um, so yeah, I mean, his, it definitely, I guess there's a little bit of a black mark, but I still, I, I still think he's top three, top five manager in all of baseball and the Rays certainly probably think the same uh, and he's going to be uh, managing the Rays for I would expect a very very long time I think he had signed a five or six year contract extension not too long ago and he's, he's a hometown kid he was he was born in Lutz uh, just outside of Tampa Florida he went to Gaither High School went to Florida State played for the Rays or then Devil Rays so he has a lot of ties to the area too as well so um, still I mean I still think he's a, a really good, if not great, manager, even after the, the Game 6 fiasco. We're here with Kevin Weiss of the Lockdown Rays podcast here on MLB Morning Coffee's 30 Teams in 30 Days. We'll get back to the pitching in just a little while. I want to transition to the lineup. With the exception of a couple of guys, mainly Hunter Renfro, this is a lineup, or at least a group of position players, that's the same as the one that ended the season in the World Series last year. Who is someone that you expect to make a big jump offensively in 2021? Yeah, I think a lot of guys uh, had down years and, and are um, expected for rebounds. I mean, Austin Meadows, for sure, is one of them. I mean, it was basically a shot year for him with with COVID-19 and having to deal with that. But one guy to really, I mean, that's kind of the obvious choice, but one guy I really kind of hone in on is Yoshi Satsugo, who the Rays signed out of uh, Japan uh, off season of, I guess, 2019. But uh, 
it was not a normal year for him. I mean, if there was ever a time for things to be difficult on a player, it was a guy coming in from another country, and then you have to deal with COVID. You're trying to get adjusted to major league pitching and the major league lifestyle and living in America for the first time, and it was just – it made things extremely, extremely tough for Yoshi, I think. Now, a little bit normalcy back into the fold. I think, um, you know, the big culture shock for him was – getting adjusted to fastballs, fastballs that are above 95 miles per hour. That's really where he struggled. But uh, I think that he is, he was such a good hitter in Japan. He's got so much power. He's got a quick enough bat that you see a fastball at that velocity enough times, you will eventually get adjusted to it. And you're facing a lot of the same opponents over and over the, over the course of 162. I think he's a guy that, that should be able to figure it out. I think he batted under 200 uh, last season. I would expect him to – I mean, the Rays signed him. and they, The Rays did a very un-Rays-like thing in giving him a, a two-year, $15 million deal, which doesn't uh, – I don't think it included the posting fee and doesn't include having to pay for a translator and, and all the other expenses that – that come with signing a player from another country that they expect big things for him. They're working him at, at third in the corner outfield spot. He's getting work at first base too. So I think maybe being a little bit more versatile and getting more playing time and getting more action will help him because in Japan, he was a star. He was in the lineup every day. The, the Rays don't really operate uh, like that, but I think, you know, this, over the course of spring training, he's been trying to learn a new position in first base. And I think that may allow him to get on and stay on the field a little bit more. And, you know, I highlighted the low average, but actually, I mean, his walk rate and his power and some of the other peripherals look pretty good. I mean, he's got the ability to drive the ball the other way. So that's a guy that I would look for, for um, not saying he's going to be an all-star or an MVP caliber player or anything like that. But I think, um, he, he could surprise some people where it's like, wow, he, he did this in 2020 and he, he's now doing this in 2021. Um, I think there's a, there's a learning curve with him. And I think uh, I would expect him to make a, a pretty big jump this season. You had mentioned Austin Meadows a little bit earlier, and he was one of my questions for you. Do you think he can return to what he was in 2019? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, what he did in 2019, um, that was an, an MVP caliber type season. I don't know if he can replicate that, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if he, you know, put together a season of batting 270 and giving you 25 home runs, something in that range. The big thing for him uh, this offseason was he was able to get in shape. And, and that was the big thing. I mean, when he showed up, uh, in the middle of last season, and, and uh, he, he came back from COVID and, and tried to kind of work his way back in, you could just tell something was off. He was heavy. He wasn't healthy. Um, his timing was off. Like, he couldn't. He didn't have as much, I would say, control or comfortability at the plate, I mean, he would get consistently eaten up by pitches that were low and away, and he would swing and take a stab at them, and it just wouldn't be a pretty swing. Now, I know it's a small sample size and very limited, but he looks a lot more balanced and calm at the plate, and he's already hit, and again, it is just spring training, but he's already hit uh, two home runs in spring training and, and starting to look more 
like his normal self. So, you know, the big thing for Austin is just being able to, like so many guys, is just being able to stay healthy. I mean, throughout the minor leagues, he had he had dealt with so many lower body uh, nicks and ailments, uh, whether it was a hamstring, a glute issue, whatever it may be. And that was, I think, part of the reason why the Pirates were maybe eager to move off of him, saying, no, this guy's just never going to really figure it out and, and be a productive major league player. And, and he definitely proved them wrong in 2019. But um, to replicate what he did that season, that, that's really, really tough to do. But I think he, he can, he certainly has the potential and has shown the skill set to be a middle of the order bat for the, the next several years for the race. Why do you think the Rays let Hunter Renfro go? Because it seemed like he was the perfect complement at his best as a platoon in the corner outfield. Yeah, I mean, he just wasn't – I actually liked Renfro, and, and maybe they did give up on him a little bit earlier, especially where he was kind of – I mean, one of uh, – was supposed to be a, a big contributor for this team. I mean, let's remember the Rays did trade Jake Cronenworth and Tommy Pham to get him and Manny Margot, and Manny Margot has worked out for sure. But I think it's a thing where they the, – the Rays have plenty of outfielders right now. I mean, they, they certainly don't lack for guys that can play in the outfield. I mean, you've got Kiermaier, you've got Margot, you've got Meadows, you've got Sutsugo, you've got Brett Phillips, uh, Randy Rosarena. How, how do you leave him out of the question? They've got a really highly touted center field prospect in Josh Lowe. I just don't think there were really enough – Spots for him, and, and I think the other thing too is Hunter Renfro, big power guy for sure, but he also strikes out a lot, uh, and he's a guy that he said before he needs more consistent action. He needs to be in the lineup more consistently, and and I think that's something the Rays weren't willing to do, and they weren't willing to pay his price. So that's why they moved off of him. And I think that the Rays are probably thinking that we can sort of in a way we'll just naturally make up what we lose in Renfro's production if Austin Meadows bounces back, if Yoshi Satsugo uh, bounces back or bounces forward, if Randy Rosarina keeps up his continuous pace. So I really, quite frankly, I don't know if there was a, a spot for him. I mean, and the, the Rays already, I mean, had a huge issue with their strikeout rate as a team, as a whole. And, taking some of that off the roster may not be such a bad thing. Now, I certainly could see him being successful with the Red Sox and in that ballpark and, and wanting to try to get revenge against the Rays. But um, I really, I, I just don't think they necessarily had a, a huge need or role for him now that they've, I mean, if anything, they're probably going to trade or, or get rid of another outfielder or two because it, it's such, it, it's so cluttered out there. That That's not even mentioning guys who can move to the outfield like Brandon Lau. He can play in the corners. Mike Brasso is another guy, Joey Wendell. I mean, they've got a lot of guys that, that, that can do that. Now, maybe not provide the, the power that Hunter Renfro did, but um, you know, I just, I just don't think it was a good fit for him in the race at the end of the day. We're here with Kevin Weiss of the Lockdown Rays podcast. I almost called you Kevin Smith and that leads into my next question. I am really surprised that the Rays decided after what was an abysmal postseason, and really, he's never had a great offensive career to bring back Mike Zunino. They acquired Francisco Mejia from the Padres as one of the guys that could be a catcher of the future. 
and they have Kevin Smith on the roster who played sparingly last year. He is what he is. He's a mediocre backup. Why do you think the Rays decided to bring back Mike Zanino and what's the direction of the catching position moving forward past this year? Yeah. uh, Well, they brought Zanino back for a big discounted cost. Uh, I think last year, I mean, prorated or whatever he was making, he was slated to make, uh, around $4 million and they brought it back for, I think two, two and a half. And then they've got an option for, uh, the following year, but it really comes down to how he works defensively. And with the pitching staff, the Rays, yeah, it, it's great to get offense out of your catcher, but there's very few catchers as it is already that can hit. And it comes down to them valuing and putting more of a premium on a guy being able to work with a pitching staff and um, getting those guys comfortable. There's some stability and uh, a factor of these guys like working with Mike Zanino. I mean, some at the end of the day, the Rays, their calling card is pitching and defense and then um, getting scoring win and wherever you can. And Mike Zanino is the guy, yeah, his, his batting average is not good. His, his contact rate is not good. Every once in a while, he'll knock one out of the ballpark. But where, where his value is all tied into um, commanding a pitching staff and being that battery and also being able to block pitches and throw runners out and things of that nature as well. So I, I think it's so easy to just look at what he does offensively and say, well, he's, he's not a good catcher. But it's so much more than that, especially when you're a, a team that, you know, you want to make your pitching staff happy. I mean, that that's what, for the most part, gets you to the dance here. And um, really, Francisco Mejia, maybe he is that catcher of the future. He isn't. I've heard that he's still even basic fundamentals of the game, basic fundamentals of the catching position still need some work. Maybe he might move on to a, a corner outfield or corner infield spot at some point. So, I don't know if Mejia is really the catcher of the future for the Rays. That remains to be seen. But at the very least, he can spell Zanino as a lefty bat and really a switch hitting bat, too, and, and bring in some, some offense, maybe be a, a late offensive replacement, whatever it is. But, um, you know, if, if you're kind of tied into the, the organization a little bit, it, it's not surprising that they bring Mike Zanino back. I mean, this is a thing, you know, they, they've really never – put a premium on an offensive catcher. It's all about the defense and, and working with the pitching staff and, and make sure, making sure those guys are on the same page. And, and there's something to be said for having that rapport year in and year out. Um, now, as for the future, I mean, again, you go back to that Blake Snell trade. They acquired Blake Hunt, and that is a guy that seems to be an intriguing prospect. Uh, so the, that that could be your your catcher of the future, maybe three, four, five years down the line. But um, I would fully expect Mike Zanino not only to play this year with the Rays, but also next year with the Rays, and, and they'll they'll kind of see where Mejia is at from there. And and you know if if Kevin Smith was greater defensively and and brought more to the table in that realm, he'd probably unseat or get more opportunities for Mike Zanino. But I don't think that's happened uh, as of yet with them. Kevin Weiss of the Lockdown Rays podcast. One last position player question for you. You brought up the big buzz man, Randy Arozarena. Had one of the best postseasons of all time. Had a great end of the regular season when the Rays brought him up from the alternate site. 
What kind of expectations are on him going into 2021? And even though the Rivers love to play platoon all over the field, is he a guy that you think can be the everyday left fielder now and into the future? Yeah, I think definitely he's at least what he did in the regular season and into the postseason. He's, he's not going to replicate what he did in the postseason, I don't think. I don't think he's batting you know 377 for the rest of his career. But what he did in the regular season and maybe a little bit of what he did in the postseason, I, I see him as, I mean, I think on the low end, a, a 2020 guy, 25-25 guy, um, and, and definitely a guy who deserves to be in the lineup every day. I don't know if he would be a they, – they might – want to rotate him around from left field to right field, DH him on occasion as well. But um, he, he's really making a case to to be a, an everyday middle of the order bat platoon or not platoon. I mean, he is, he is certainly getting into that right there. But um, it'll be interesting to see how he adjusts now. He, he's had a lot came at him over the course of the postseason and – into the offseason. I mean, there's a movie being made about him, a documentary being made about him. He got into some legal issues in Mexico. You, you wonder if that drive is still there or if success went to his head. I can't answer that. We, we won't know that until the season starts. And, you know, we know that Randy Rosarina, now that um, teams sort of have a scouting report on him and can attack what, if any, weaknesses he has, that'll be something to see. How does he adjust and and keep that staying power at the big league level. He has a tendency to be aggressive. We'll see if teams attack him with more breaking balls. We know he's a fastball killer. Um, he, he can, no matter the velocity, no matter the velocity, no matter where it's located, Randy Rosarena can send a fastball for a ride. We saw that throughout the regular season and the postseason. I don't know if I've ever seen, I mean, his his bat speed, his hand speed, the way he drives the ball, not just pulling the ball, but right center field um, and really spraying the ball to all fields is, is really a sight to see, not to mention what he does. I mean, he's really legitimately, I mean, as close to a five-tool player as you could ask for. Now, defensively, I think maybe he's not, he's got a great arm, but as far as the range and, and making spectacular catches, I don't know if he's quite there yet. Um, I know with the added bulk that, that may have made him a little bit more clunky in the outfield there, but He's definitely, I think, he's going to be under team control for several, several years. Um, I would fully expect him to be a middle-of-the-order bat for, uh, and in a raised uniform for, for the foreseeable future. He's definitely an, an exciting, exciting player. He, I mean, throughout the postseason, he was the, the – there's not many guys in baseball that are appointment television viewing. I've got to watch this at bat. But Randy was that type of guy, and it'll be fun and interesting to see if he can continue that. But I think – we also have to taper our expectations a little bit and see how he does over the course of 162. I mean, you, a lot of guys can step up and perform over the course of 30, 40 games, but can you have a good season? Can you have a good five-year run? Can you have a good 10-year run? Can you have a good career? Um, and how does he handle the dog days of summer where you've played 18 games in, in 20 days and you're dealing with the humidity and you're, you're tired and you don't really want to be forced to play, but you've got to, you've got to find a way to play. Like that's going to be something he has to adjust to as he adjusts to his first full big league season. So, um, you know, I, I, I think a lot of, you know, betting outlets and such have him as the rookie of the year favorite. And I don't disagree with that. I think definitely he, 
he is a candidate for that as he still maintained his rookie el- eligibility. But um, I, I don't think it's, he's going to have a season where he, he he's not going to be Matt, Mike Trout or Mookie Betts. I don't think. I don't think he's going to you know do something in that light. But definitely 20, 2020 guy, 25, 25 guy, and, and see, see where he goes from there. Let's move on to the pitching. Charlie Morton is no longer here. Blake Snell is no longer here. But Tyler Glasnow is, is still there. What does Tyler Glasnow have to do in order to become a true ace other than, as we saw in the postseason, sharpening his command? Yeah, that, that's really the big thing. And also learning another pitch. That, that's a big thing for Tyler Glasnow, being able to execute that pitch and tie up hitters. He he's toyed with a changeup over the years, hasn't really used it all that much. Really, it's just a slow fastball, it's a more hittable fastball for the opposition. But now he is working on a slider slash cutter variation and trying to work that in the fold. And if he's able to successfully command and control that, then he could be really, really extremely dangerous when you consider he's got, you know, the ninety nine fastball at the top of the zone and then the the hard 12-6 curveball that that drops like a dime and then you you add a little bit of a variation horizontally uh with with a slider and, and a cutter whatever whatever it wants to call it could could really be big for him um but and the other thing too is you know he's he's never really figured it out in the postseason so that's a big thing for him going forward like to if you're truly going to be that ace and truly going to be the the relied upon guy you've got to be able to show up and step up in the postseason like like Snell has done before like Charlie Morton has done before and we've yet to really seen that from Glass. I mean if there's a huge concern about this pitching staff and expectations of trying to get to the ALCS in the World Series it's like well does does a one two three combo of Glass now Yarbrough and Archer or Waka or Hill or fill in the blank really like scare another team compared to what some other teams are throwing out there with their one, twos and threes and so forth. So that's the thing with class. Now also uh, he's got to show, he's got to be able to stay healthy for a full season. We've, we've yet to really see that the most innings he's pitched in a regular season was about 111. Um, and he was off to a great start in, in 2019, but had that forearm issue only pitched 60 innings, 2020, um, you know, I mean, he was healthy and available, but it was only a 60-game season and pitched, I think, 55 innings or so. So are, are we ever going to get a glass now that can give you 165, 175, 180 innings? That, that's a big question mark going forward. And they're certainly going to need that going from 60 to 162 and, and so many other question marks on the pitching staff as well. I always think of the scene from Moneyball when they're talking about replacing Jason Giambi, Johnny Damon, and... Jason Isringhausen and saying that we're going to recreate this in the aggregate. And that's what I feel like the Rays have done with replacing Blake Snell and Charlie Morton. They get two guys in Chris Archer and Colin McHugh who didn't pitch at all in 2020. They get Rich Hill, who's really old. And then they pick up Michael Waka, who in his one season with the Mets, granted it was only eight appearances was absolutely abysmal. And over his last couple of years with the Cardinals, he was nowhere near the once top prospect status he was when he first came up to St. Louis. Of those four guys, who do you think is going to be the one that will contribute the most? And I will preface this by saying 
that of those four guys, Colin McHugh's best season in the big leagues was when he was a full-time reliever in Houston in 2018 when he made 58 appearances and had a 199 ERA. So I don't feel like he's going to be the guy that ends up in the starting rotation. But if you want to throw him in there, throw him in there. But of the three traditional starters, who do you expect the most out of in 2021? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really tough to tell because all those guys, you, you just don't know what you're really going to get on any given day. And with their age and their injury histories to boot as well. But I think it would have to definitely come down to either Chris Archer or Michael Walker. I mean, let's consider the Rays did fork up six and a half million dollars for Chris Archer. And um, the Rays don't do that lightly. They don't spend that kind of money, even though it's not much money to other MLB franchises. So they must know something that we don't know. And I think I would expect that in their evaluations and their medical reports and seeing his bullpen sessions that he has recovered from his uh, thoracic outlet syndrome surgery and some other ailments that he has been plagued with. And he's also, he comes into camp, I think, more mature with a more veteran presence. He seems like this is like a second lease on life for him. Um, you know, since going from Pittsburgh where it just didn't work out, he was on a bad team. I don't think he had any fun whatsoever there and he's coming back home. And I think there's a comfortability and a familiarity factor there. Again, working with Kyle Snyder and going back to what works for Chris Archer, the, the pirates tried to turn him into a two seamer ground ball, sinker baller type of guy. And that just didn't work. And, and the Rays are going to play to his strengths that highlights his, his slider and highlights him trying to get strikeouts with his fastball, even though I don't think it's going to be quite as dominant as it was in his early years with the Rays from, you know, 2011 to 2017, 2018, whatever it may be. So, and I don't think that he's necessarily going to put up the numbers that, that Blake Snell or, or Charlie Morton are going to put up, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he, you know, had an ERA under four and gave you 100, 120 innings. Um, that I don't think that's totally, totally out of the realm of possibility, especially when you consider what the Rays do defensively and how they position guys to be in a good spot. And they've also got some very elite defenders as well, Kevin Kiermeyer being one of them, of course. So I think all that could help his, uh, his ERA numbers and, and things like that. So that, that's really a, a guy I would definitely focus on. I mean, if, if that's who the Rays paid the most to. So um, that that's really, I think, between him and Waka. You know, one thing we have to keep in mind about Waka, too, is yeah, his, his numbers didn't look good with the Mets, but he actually put up really good strikeout-to-walk ratios, and I think the Rays are kind of digging deep into that as well. And, you know, it, it, that's a great point you made, Greg, about the money ball thing, because – I wouldn't be totally surprised if, you know, Blake Snell, something could happen to him. I mean, injury-wise, he has not, like, as I alluded to earlier, not been totally healthy over the past couple of years. And Charlie Morton, what, 37, 38 years old? Anything can happen to a guy like that as well. So the Rays were kind of facing the, the risk-reward thing. And, and you know, you, you pay those two guys a combined $26, 27000000 million, and they get hurt, and then you're out of pocket there. So, 
Um, but anyway, going back to my point, yeah, Chris Archer, I, I'd probably look at it as a guy for, you know, some big contributions this year for the Rays. The Rays had six main guys that they used out of the bullpen in the postseason last year. Two of them are no longer there in Aaron Loop and John Curtis. Are you surprised that they let those guys, well, they traded away Curtis and they let Loop walk. Are you surprised they didn't keep those guys or is there enough organizational depth to where they didn't need to keep those guys? Yeah, it was really one of those things where, I mean, the, the Rays and like so many other teams, the, the volatility of being a reliever and a bullpen arm, um, you can kind of, you can replace one guy with another guy and still not really miss a beat. I mean, last year, nobody really expected any, nobody knew who John Curtis was before last year. Um, Aaron Loop, I, I want to say he signed a minor league deal with the Rays. Like he wasn't, nobody, he wasn't really on anybody's radar as successful as he was. So the Rays feel like they can replace what those guys did in house. And, and they got some value in John Curtis by uh, trading for a somewhat intriguing first base prospect from the Marlins. And I think that, you know, what they've got with their, their current arms, and they made a couple additions too, like Chaz Rowe, they signed back. Andrew Kittredge, they signed back. Um, Cody Reed is a guy, a lefty. He would conceivably maybe be able to replace what Aaron Loop did. Cody Reed looked good in his brief appearance or appearances with the Rays, but just had that finger issue and, and couldn't get on track. So, you know, that's a guy, too. They also had made trades for a couple of, of Red Sox borderline guys and Jeffrey Springs and Chris Mazza. And let's consider that the Rays have a lot of pitching prospects on the come up, like Shane McClanahan, it's, it's his time. Brendan McKay, it's about his time. Brent Honeywell, it's his time. Colin McHugh, uh, or Josh Fleming, um, that, that's another guy that, that's going to be relied upon too. So it, it, it's really a thing of they didn't really need those guys, and they, they've got so many other guys that are kind of knocking on the door that, that might end up being better than those guys as well. I'm glad that you transitioned into the prospect side of things because I do have two prospect questions before I end with my final question that I end with every one of these 30 teams in 30 days. McKay's a a former top pick. McClanahan's a former compensation round pick. Hunt talked about for a long time, and Fleming got the big league run this year. Which one of those guys do you think has the most to prove once he does get to the big leagues this year? Because – I don't see necessarily all four of them, let alone two of them opening on the opening day roster. But I will say that I was impressed with what I saw from Fleming last year. What I've seen from Shane McClanahan, I've liked, I think the expectations are a little bit higher for McKay than necessarily what his performance has been. And Honeywell as a knuckleballer is somebody that once he finally finds his groove and is given the opportunity, I feel like he could really thrive at the big league level. So which one of those four guys do you think has the most to prove going into this year and will be relied upon most in 2021? Yeah, I, I'd say it's definitely down to McKay and Honeywell. Um, I mean, Honeywell, I don't even know if I can put him in the equation because he just hasn't pitched in a meaningful game, minor league, pro, whatever it may be since 2017. I mean, he's had so many surgeries since then. So I'll just kind of eliminate him from the fold. I, I really don't know. Uh, he, he's a huge, huge question mark for me, and uh, I'll believe it when I see it. I, I just – I don't even 
I, I, I don't even think I brought up his name because I, I think he's not quite there yet. But Brennan McKay, I think he's been since he was drafted out of Louisville and was given that six million dollar signing bonus, and he was promoted as a two way player, and he was so dominant at every level of the minor leagues. And the talk was, when is McKay going to get the call? When is McKay going to get the call? It's McKay mania. It it was, I don't want to say it's the same as what we're going through with Wander Franco mania, but on a pitching side, everybody was, hey, can't wait to see McKay. And when he got to the big leagues, like he was dominant in his first appearance, I believe against the Texas Rangers in 2019. And then he kind of fell off from there and, this wasn't that effective, and we saw that he's a guy that's got great command, strike thrower, no issues with that, but he really lacks an out pitch, a real put-away pitch, and his fastball velocity, like, it didn't wow you. So you wonder about there's this guy that is supposed to be your 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 future ace, and he didn't really show that or, or light the world on fire. Uh, in his big league time. And then what happens? He gets COVID and then he gets hurt and he has off-season surgery. And uh, there's really no set timeline for when and if he's going to return in 2021, maybe mid-season. And and that might be kind of shooting for the moon there uh, with that. So although he is actually getting, I I think, BP batting practice work as uh, you get to throw rehab sessions. So still trying to keep the bat sharp. But um, there's such an allure uh, about McKay because he was envisioned as a two-way player and at the very least uh, a number two, maybe number one, at the very least number three starter. And we really haven't seen that yet as he's already 25 years old. So that's a guy I, w- I would think maybe not necessarily for 2021, maybe late season 2021 going into 2022 that has a ton of ton to prove. And there's been question marks about his shoulder if it's ever going to get back on track so there's a lot with McKay that that still needs to be sorted out and, and I would say that's a guy that that really has a chip on his shoulder I mean all those guys do in a way Honeywell for sure but McKay definitely I think because they're, they're, he's been talked about um, you know consistently as a top prospect and such over the years I want to transition now to the top prospect in baseball, Wander Franco. And you talked about Wander Franco mania. I feel like a lot of people want him to be up at some point this year because of how well he has performed in his minor league career. But people seem to forget about him. The guy's only 20 years old, but he made it to high A as an 18-year-old. When do you think Rays fans will see Wander Franco in a big league uniform? And as you alluded to a little bit earlier in the podcast, is it after the Rays eventually trade away Willie Adamas? Yeah, that's that's a good question there. I think that he's definitely not making the opening day roster. Um, and I really don't see him up any time before midseason. I think certainly a September call-up is in the fold, depending on how injuries and things shake out let's remember again he just turned 20 years old he didn't play in the minors last season um he's only got i think throughout his professional career maybe 450 500 plate appearances and really you you want to try to give a guy a a thousand to fifteen hundred even a guy of wander franco's caliber and it's not just like willie adamas that 
Wander Franco has to beat out. It's Taylor Walls. That, that's probably the next guy. Like if Willie Adamas went down tomorrow with something, they'd probably call up Taylor Walls, who in his own respect is a pretty um, pretty solid prospect. Can I mean, he is known and, and might be the the best defensive player in the race farm system. Switch hitter, I mean, can kind of do, can hold his own at the position until Wander Franco would be ready. But um, yeah, I, and, and you also have the, the service time issue and, and the super two status and trying to give the Rays trying to navigate it to where they would have an extra year of control for Wander Franco. If there's a year where you want to manipulate service time, or if there's a player where you want to manipulate service time with, it is a guy like Wander Franco. I mean, they did it with Willie Adams. That's why he's not going to be in arbitration for his first year until this coming off season. That might be the time when the Rays trade Willie. And, you know, I, I, there's so much talk about, you know, Franco unseating Willie at some point. And I think that definitely will happen, but I think there's also something to be said for, Wander spending some big league time and sharing the infield with Willie. Maybe they call up Franco in September or maybe a little bit earlier and have him play third base or second base, move him around the diamond a little bit and try to build a rapport with Willie and and try to uh, partake some wisdom from him and and what it means to be a big leaguer and and how he goes about his business. I mean, Willie Adams is a pretty darn good shortstop and uh, maybe top half in the league. And, and there's a lot that you would think that Franco could glean from practicing and working out and seeing him go through drill work every day, because Adonis is definitely a hard worker. And he's also a top of the step guy, brings a leadership and a charisma and a confidence aspect to his game as well. So that might not be a guy. It might not be something where, okay, we got to trade Willie Adonis so we can bring up Wander Franco. Why, why can't they air some time together before you, you have to move into arbitration with Willie. So that's another thing that has to be considered. But, you know, I, I think definitely Wander Franco starting, uh, starting the – he, he's not going to make the opening day roster. He'll probably start in, in double A uh, and then, then go from there. I, I still think it's, it's – and, and let's remember, too, it's a 26-man roster. It's not a 28-man roster. And, and you don't want to call him up not to play him every day. If you're going to call him up, you better be – ready to play him every day if the minor league season is over or still not going on because that's a guy you want to continue to get reps and um he, he really is a guy that has not yet failed so you you wonder how he adjusts and reacts to that sometimes you call a guy up too early they fail and they never recover i don't think wanders that type of guy necessarily because he does have um an, an aspect to him that he's so confident in his game and his talents and his abilities that he can overcome that. But there's a lot to navigate with that. And the Rays just don't call up guys early. So um, I think we should probably cool it a little bit on, like we all want to talk about the next hot shot prospect. That's all great. But um, I I would not expect before, before summer hits that, that he's in a Rays uniform. Kevin White's of the Locked on Rays podcast. Kevin, before we let you go, let everybody know where they can follow you and where they can find the podcast. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Greg. So um, you can find Locked on Rays on, on pretty much any podcasting platform out there, Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio, iTunes. You can just Google it and, and you can find it there. Um, and find us on Twitter, too, at Locked on Rays. That, that's the best way to reach out to us. 
Kevin Weiss of the Lockdown Rays podcast. Thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Anytime. That was Kevin Weiss of the Lockdown Rays podcast here on MLB Morning Coffee's 30 Teams in 30 Days. That's it for now. Tomorrow, we head to the Windy City to preview the Chicago Cubs. Have a great day, everybody.